I want to talk tonight about the force of metta, or loving-kindness, or love. When the Buddha himself was talking about his life, he was describing the motivating principle of his own life. He talked about living for the welfare of the many, for the good of the many, out of sympathy for the world, dedicated to the happiness of all living beings everywhere. This was also the dedication that he encouraged in others to see one's own life as a vehicle for bringing happiness, for bringing peace to ourselves, to others, out of sympathy for all that lives. The word metta means love or loving kindness. It's quite an awkward word to somehow try to translate. Loving kindness is not a common expression. It doesn't necessarily mean anything to us. And yet the word love is so complex. Most often in our culture, it seems to convey either a sense of desire and attachment or a strange kind of sentimentality. When it is desire or attachment, it's really quite different from this force of loving kindness. It's very complex, it's quite intricate enmeshed with feelings of need and wanting and clinging and having and owning and possessing. It's very much entangled with a sense of needing things to be a certain way in order for us to be perfectly happy. So the question becomes for us very powerfully, what is it that I really need in order to be happy? What do I need in order to be happy? from my circumstances, from other people? Do I need anything in order to be happy? Think about when I first went to India to practice meditation. I look back really in gratitude at the fact that I didn't arrive with a long list of circumstances and situations that I felt needed to be in place in order for me to be happy, like running water or hot water, or food of a certain type, or a bug-free environment. If the list had been there, I could never have stayed. I would have been constrained and restricted by that sense of need, having to have something in order to be happy. It was actually not having that list. It was the absence of those desires that gave me the freedom to be very present in some very unusual situations. Having our expectations met, needing for things to be a certain way in order for us to be happy. It's the sense of exchange that underlies many times our sense of what love is about. It's very conditioned, it's very fragile. I will love you as long as the following conditions are met. You know, as long as you love me back and as long as you say so in a particular way and as long as these following 15 things are done, it's not a very overflowing sense of giving or of love. The spirit of metta is such that it's not so conditioned and it's not so fragile. A person in their actions may disappoint us but we do not on that account cease to feel love for them. 
just as we ourselves may disappoint ourselves, but we do not on that account cease to love ourselves. To relate not in a sense of having and wanting and needing, but out of a very complete presence that knows its own sufficiency. When we are relating out of a sense of having, there's me and there's an object, whether it's a person or actually a material object. And always, always there's a sense of separation that is created between myself and the object by the very nature of the relationship. Out of this duality, this needing to control, making sure nothing changes so that my needs will be met, there comes fear, there comes guardedness. There was a time some years ago when I received as a present this glass teapot which I enjoyed tremendously. And I I remember I often told people that it was one of my very favorite things to own. One day, I had it on the stove. I had water boiling in it for tea. I went over to it. I picked it up. And for some reason, it broke. It just shattered. And the water went in my hand, and it felt burned. I can remember that my thought at the time and for some little time afterwards was, how could it have betrayed me so? I even went around telling people that it was my very favorite thing. You know, how could it have betrayed me? It's that sense of owning or possessiveness. Actually, the friend who had given me the teapot was a friend who had transcribed a number of my talks, and so she came to know in reading the talks that the teapot had broken, so she gave me another one. (laughs) I had it on the stove just tonight, and I saw that I was watching it. (laughs) You know, like, what's going to happen now? But this is how we are, with that sense of of reliance, of need, of having, of holding and clinging. What's going to happen now? How can I keep things static or stagnant so that my needs will be met? It's not a very overpowering sense of of love in its true generosity. The other way that this this word love is used very often is the sense of sentimentality, which is an ally of delusion. It means not knowing things as they actually are, pretending, having our sense of love and acceptance and openness confined to that which is pleasant. I think of it sometimes as kind of a Hallmark greeting card sort of love. Everything is wonderful and everything is nice and there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering. We can't face the rough edges of things. We can't face the difficulties, the conflicts, the defects. Everything is just so nice. It's so perfect. It finds pain unbearable. So rather than being expansive enough or open enough to include it in the fullness of our awareness or our acceptance, we are dismayed by it, we're overcome by it. We need to deny it, to pretend it is not there. That is sentimentality. It's not love. It's not metta. Metta is a power. It's a force. 
that comes from the true seeing of our oneness, of non-separation. And seeing that, in fact, despite our thinking or despite our ideas or delusions, we have never been separate. We have never been alone or apart. And so the feelings that come from that very mistaken duality cease to be. They just naturally fall away. Feelings of isolation, feelings of fear, of fragmentation, of alienation. They fall away because there's nothing there to sustain them or to nourish them. There's no place for them to take root. There's no illusion of separateness to uphold them, so they fall away. We experience this as the power of metta directed towards ourselves as well, which is why it's considered to be such a healing force. We experience the wholeness of our being rather than feeling ourselves to be broken up into these different parts or fragments. We're able to face all different elements and aspects of our experience rather than needing to cut off and deny certain parts of that. There's integrity, there's wholeness, there's oneness. It all comes together in this force of loving-kindness. And we heal as we come to know this intrinsic wholeness, this oneness, because of the power of unification. There's confidence and there's some faith. There's a knowing of safety, of having a refuge or being free from danger not through contrivance and not through cutting ourselves off from others, but through the very opening to ourselves and to others. And just as it happens within ourselves, we come to see that so too with others, with all of nature, or with life itself, we can experience this oneness, which is a tremendous difference in perspective. It's like the difference between sitting on the shore of the ocean watching the waves dance on the surface of the water. We start from there, and we experience ourselves as the watcher, as the witness. Slowly we come to a place where we experience ourselves as though being underwater. We're in the calm, still depths of that ocean, and we watch the waves above us, moving and playing. And from there, we move on to the knowing or the understanding that, in fact, we are the water, that we're not different from that, we're not apart. And they're simply waving, there's stillness or there's movement. So we open and we open and we come closer to the truth of our actual experience. It's not the kind of openness that is excessively vulnerable, that brings tremendous fear. In fact, the Buddha first taught the loving-kindness meditation, as an antidote to fear, saying that a mind that is filled even with terrible fear can still be permeated or penetrated by the quality of loving-kindness, whereas a mind that is saturated with loving-kindness cannot be overcome by fear. Even if fear should arise, it will not be able to overcome us or overpower us. It's understanding our connectedness, where we might imagine separation, we might imagine alienation. There was a time here when I was waking up quite early, it was during the fall when we teach this long retreat, the three-month course. 
as waking up quite early in the morning and walking the three-mile loop. In those days, not now, but then, there was a dog living somewhere down the road who was turning out to be quite mean to people. As people would walk by, he would snarl and snap, and needless to say, he aroused a great deal of terror in people. He's not here anymore. (laughs) This was a gigantic dog. He was immense. His name was Max. I would get up in the morning, and my route took me right by Max. So first I started thinking, well, what I'll do is I'll get in a car, and I'll drive by, (laughs) and I'll leave the car beyond him, and then I'll walk the rest of the way. But the trouble with walking in a circle (laughs) is that sooner or later you have to pass Max to get to your car. So I thought, well, that won't work. I'll just do it. I'll just go on and do it. It was amazing because every morning I woke up and my very first thought was, Max. (laughs) Is Max going to be out there today? He was never out there. He didn't come out till later in the day usually, but every morning it was Max. And as I walked down the road, getting closer and closer to his house, I would feel the fear just getting stronger and stronger. I started thinking, when I've heard that, the Dalai Lama wakes up in the morning and his very first thought is a prayer. It's like a dedication prayer. May every one of my actions throughout this day be for the benefit of all living beings. And I remembered that when I was practicing in Burma, when I was practicing mindfulness meditation in Burma, we were working so intensively that we were encouraged to notice whether we woke up with an in-breath or an out-breath. And here I was waking up in the morning thinking about Max in absolute terror. So I began to feel very ignoble. But there was nothing I could do. The fear was just, it was just terrible. And one day, I left my house in the morning, and I went walking down the road, and for the first time, Max was actually out there. I got closer and closer, utterly terrified. Max stood up, came walking into the road, started growling, and from some deep unconscious place came this comment from me, which was, Max, (laughs) did you know that my middle name was Maxine? Which it is. I said, Max, people used to call me Max too when I was a kid. I just looked at Max, and Max looked at me, And he just kind of walked back. He walked back to his place and he sat down. And I walked on. That's my story of oneness. (laughs) But it was amazing because I actually went through a transformation in terms of my feelings about Max. It wasn't that I became foolish. I understood that he was a very temperamental being and he had the potential to harm me. But I felt more in the sense of how we might feel towards a friend of ours who's in great trouble, who's very unbalanced, who might act in a way where they're not not able to look at the consequences of their actions. Rather than seeing him as the enemy, the one who was out there waiting for me, the great other who is going to hurt me at the first opportunity, I did actually feel a sense of connection. So that even though I felt cautious and I felt I acted appropriately, it was with an entirely different 
sense of things. But this is how we are. There's a max out there waiting to get us, waiting to harm us. And not only out there, but inside as well. We have that sense of this great alien beast, like that gigantic dog that is not a part of us. It's separate. It's the enemy. It's alien. The question is, can we incorporate that in some way? Not to come into danger, not to act stupidly, but because of the power of our love to see what the force of connection can actually do. It's the force of metta that binds us together. It's called, in fact, the cohesive factor or the binding factor. In the Buddhist psychological teaching, it said that when a person experiences a lot of anger, then the heart or the mind is very dry. The heart and the mind, as you know, being the same thing. It's the same word. The mind and the heart become very dry when we're angry. And when we're feeling very loving, then the mind or the heart becomes wet or moist. If you think about two substances in nature that are dry and we put them together to try to join them, they won't, they won't come together, they won't hold. Whereas if we add moisture, we add some wetness, then these two substances can bind, they can come together. In just that same way, the force of metta or loving-kindness allows us to cohere, to abandon or let go of a feeling of separation, of being disconnected. And so naturally, all of those qualities which are born out of the sense of being unable to connect, they will fall away. That is fear and alienation and loneliness and feeling fragmented. Metta as the power of loving kindness, not bound up with desire, not bound up with wanting, doesn't have to pretend that things are other than the way they actually are. And so it overcomes our sense of isolation. It overcomes the illusion of separateness. We can see things as they actually are. We can open to it, open to the whole of things. And so this fundamental error and all of the suffering that comes from it has no place. It has no place to be. It's the genuine realization of connectedness and all that that brings. The mind can become suffused with these qualities. We do metta practice as a meditative discipline, and we also do it as a discipline in daily life. We cultivate the force of metta so that it becomes joined with the power of intention in our minds. We talk about the power of the mind. Very often, we are talking about the power of intention saying that the intention underlying or behind an action is the most significant factor about it. In Buddhist terminology, we would say that that is the karmic seed, is the intention behind an action. We may perform an action based on a whole variety of different motives, and only we actually will know through the force of our own awareness. But this is what is tremendously powerful, more so than the action itself, is the intention behind it. The Buddha talked about this in terms of what he called the four great efforts. He talked about 
noticing through the force of our awareness those, those mind states that lead to joy and lead to love and lead to wholeness that are already very strong within us. And then creating an environment so that we nurture them and we cherish them and we help strengthen them even further. You talked about seeing those mind states that are so wholesome and so healing that are not yet very strong within us. And being able to create an environment using the power of intention to strengthen these so that they are more prevalent in our lives. And you talked about seeing all those mind states that cause us suffering, that in some way diminish us, that harm us, that are already very strong in our lives. Learning how to relinquish them, to let go of them, not to strengthen them even further. And then finally, seeing all of those mind states which are difficult and create suffering, that are not yet strong so much for us, and not going out and creating the conditions where they will get stronger and stronger. It's the four great efforts. Because the mind is constantly arising and passing away. It's a very dynamic, constantly changing force. We are not just one person. That's the story or legend we tell about ourselves. You know, I am this kind of person, and I always have been, and I always will be. It's constantly changing. So that we say not just poetically or lyrically, but actually, literally, we are dying and being reborn in every moment. And we have this ability to guide our lives in the direction that will actually bring us the greatest happiness. Buddha said that to sustain a loving mind or a loving heart, even for the duration of the snap of a finger, even just for one second, makes us a truly spiritual person. If we look around the world, we certainly see a lot of suffering. And in some ways, the most poignant thing that we see is how much people want to be happy and the very strange often twisted, distorted ways that this manifests. But we say within the Buddha's teaching that every single living being wants to be happy. And that if we look inside any action, even in the strongest addiction, even in the most terrible violence, we will see some, somewhere within this urge towards happiness, towards feeling oneself a part of something greater than our limited self, our limited being. That we can find that, that urge to be happy. And yet so often it is combined with a truly terrible ignorance so that people do awful things as they begin this, this search out of this yearning. It's this urge to bond, to feel connected. Everybody wants to be happy, and so very few beings know how. This is very important to understand. It said that the proximate cause or the nearest arising condition, the most powerful force for feeling love or metta is to see the goodness in someone. Even if they have a whole long list of truly terrible qualities, 
If we focus on those terrible qualities, we'll feel aversion, we'll feel dislike, we'll feel impatience, or we'll feel fear. If we can find just one good quality within them and we focus on that, there will be some heart warming. This doesn't mean we pretend that everything else isn't there. We acknowledge that it's there. It's not denial and it's not sentimentality. But if we open to the good in someone, then we can come close to them. And when we are communicating about the difficult aspects, it's from a place of being side by side, that we are connected or we're united. We're not apart. This person is not the other. And so we look for the good in someone, also within ourselves, to feel this force of loving kindness towards ourselves. We focus on the good. And if we can't find it, we absolutely cannot find one good quality in somebody, then we focus on this universal wish to be happy, that we share this, we all share this. Just as I want to be happy, so this person also wants to be happy. This is an alliance with a fundamental truth that is somewhat difficult for us to to accept sometimes. And that is that, in some ways, the best thing about ourselves is this wish to be happy. That underlying what we do is this urge to feel at home in our own lives, to feel at one and to be united. Out of ignorance, we or others make some very terrible mistakes, but everybody wants to be happy. And so as we reflect on that own wish within ourselves, it's not something to feel ashamed of or embarrassed about or uneasy about. It's really wonderful. It's one of the best things about us, and we should remember that. The question is discovering what does make us happy? What does bring happiness? What do I really need in order to be happy? It's on the energy of that joy that we do meditation practice, that we continue to grow in understanding and to develop, that we are practicing out of love and compassion for ourselves and love and compassion for other beings. See the goodness in someone so that we can open to them and to see the goodness within ourselves, or to focus on this wish to be happy. The word metta has two root meanings. One root is the word for gentle, and so it's likened to a very gentle rain that falls upon the earth, not choosing certain places to fall while excluding others. It's universal. The other root meaning is that of friend, To understand the power or the force of metta is to understand what it means to be a true friend for oneself or for other beings. The Buddha actually described at some length what he meant by a good friend. He talked about somebody who was a good friend or a true friend as being a helper or someone who will protect us when we're unprepared to take care of ourselves in some circumstance when we're surprised by life in some way, that person is very steadfast. He talked about a good friend as being someone who will be a refuge for us when we're feeling afraid. He talked about a friend as being someone who, when we need something, will be there to provide much more than we actually need. 
And he talked about a good friend as someone who's constant in our times of happiness, in our times of adversity or sorrow. He talked about a friend as being someone who will share openly with us and completely and will also not betray our confidence to others. Someone who won't forsake us when we're in trouble. He especially talked about a good friend in terms of a teacher, using himself as an example. Someone who will encourage us to stop or to pause when we're about to do something that would create harm for ourselves or for others. Someone who would encourage us in our ability as human beings to be loving, to be free. Someone who acknowledges that and who reinforces that ability to choose skillful things, to choose skillful motivations. Someone who reminds us of what we know to be true, that that's a real treasure. Buddha said that if we could find a friend who relates to us in this way, that that person is such a treasure that we should be willing to follow them to the ends of the earth. A friend is constant, someone who's sympathetic, doesn't rejoice over our misfortunes, which it's very easy to do at times. It's such a common tendency to feel better about oneself and one's own situation by belittling somebody else or by wishing that their happiness be not quite so overwhelming. But a true friend would not do that. They take delight rather than being envious when things are going well for us. If somebody is speaking badly about us in front of this friend, they will restrain them and they'll speak well of us. A friend is like a living example of generosity and care and morality and kindness. It's an amazing example. Once when the Dalai Lama was speaking and somebody was talking to him and told him how much fear they were experiencing in their practice, in their meditation practice, the Dalai Lama said in response, well, when you're feeling afraid, just put your head in the lap of the Buddha. I think of that lap of the Buddha as being the symbol of the perfect friend. It's a refuge. Metta is learning to be this friend for oneself and for all beings. When we do metta practice in a formal way, and we'll do some of it tomorrow morning, beginning tomorrow morning, we do it in a very structured pattern. We begin the practice of loving kindness towards ourselves because this is considered the home base. This is the beginning of things to be able to direct this force towards ourselves to embrace ourselves, to suffuse ourselves with this sense of care. We move on to someone who has been very good to us, who has helped us a lot, who has been kind to us. This person is known as a benefactor. We move on from them to a good friend, someone whom we care about a lot. Then we move on to what is called a neutral person, someone towards whom we feel neither great liking nor disliking. This is often a very interesting time in metta practice because sometimes it's hard, it's quite difficult to find someone we haven't already made quite a strong judgment about. As soon as we meet them, we like them or we don't like them. But if we can find one 
we direct the sense of loving care towards a neutral person. We then go on from that person to what is called somewhat dramatically in the scriptures, an enemy, someone with whom there's difficulty, there's conflict, there's a lack of forgiveness, there's fear. This is also a very interesting and powerful place because this person that we have a lot of difficulty with or conflict with stands right at the division between the finite and the infinite. It's this very person, it's this very place where we see the line between conditioned love and unconditioned love. That dependent love, which means we feel it as long as people are good to us, is a somewhat different feeling than independent love, where we may not get what we actually want. We may not get our expectations met. We may still disapprove powerfully of the actions of this person. We don't become stupid. But there is this sense of connection. So it's not that beast out there who is so completely separate and divided from we ourselves. It's at this point that we are right at our limit and we come to see the transparency of that limitation. When we define something as unbearable, then we're at our limit. And that's not to say that we force our way through or we try to break our way through violently to a different space out of a kind of idealism. You know, I should be perfectly loving all of the time and I actually really despise this person, but you know, I'll just somehow manage to put a thin veneer of love over it. It's not that. Because fundamentally, as aware beings, we strive to be understanding and to notice what we are truly feeling at all times, to see the truth of the present moment. And then we have to understand the roots of that feeling as well. What gives rise to our pain and our suffering? What gives rise to a genuine flow of loving kindness? It's not a question of forcing, forcing and demanding or pushing in a way that's completely unreal. But it is very much a sense of confidence in our own ability as human beings to cultivate this force, this understanding. This is our potential and it's very real. It's not a question of having a model of perfection that forces us to hold ourselves in and once again deny what's actually going on. But seeing what the Buddha called this precious human birth that is very rare, very rare and precious to have a birth first as a human being within the Buddhist cosmology and to have a quality of life that allows us to actually look, not just to live mechanically, but to be willing to step aside from all that's familiar and to look, to investigate, to examine, to come to understanding. It's a very, very precious thing. And so it's important that we use it, that we bring it to flower. It's easy to imagine this force of loving kindness as being very stilted and unreal, which it's really not. Some years ago in, I don't remember if it was in Newsweek or Time magazine, there was an interview with a beauty queen, 
of some time ago, I think it was Miss Kentucky of the 30s or 40s. So they asked Miss Kentucky what she had to say all these years later about her life. And she said, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of smiling. You just think, here's this poor woman, maybe 30 or 40 years of smiling for the camera. Often when we think of metta, we think of loving kindness. We think of something like that, a fatuous smile that we don't really mean, putting on a display of ourselves as a spiritual person full of love. And it's not like that. It is a tremendous force of purification so that it can genuinely uproot all of the constraints and the contractions that hold us back, that keep us afraid, that keep us feeling separate. We talk about metta in conjunction with several other forces. One of these is that of compassion. Compassion is defined as the trembling or the quivering of the heart in relation to seeing suffering, seeing pain. It's not the same as aversion, feeling overcome by the pain, feeling it to be unbearable. It's not the same as grief or sorrow where a sense of purpose is shattered. It's not closing, but rather an opening. It's this movement, this very tender openness of the heart, being able to accept things as they are, see them for what they are, and move to change them out of this very great care. We feel compassion, as with metta, towards those whom we know, those whom we don't know, an ever-increasing circle, so that we come to all beings everywhere. We practice metta, we practice compassion. We also practice a quality which is known as sympathetic joy, or the ability to rejoice in others' happiness. Very commonly, what we experience when we see somebody being happy is the wish that they be a little less happy. Now, I would be so much happier myself if I would feel confident that your happiness would erode soon. You know, so that I'd feel better about my own situation. This is very, very common. We practice the sense of sympathetic joy to be able to take active delight in the happiness of others so that we do not feel diminished. We do not feel we are losing anything from their happiness, but we understand that their happiness is our happiness, that they're not separate, they're not apart. And so we can only feel confident and happy in that situation. And we practice metta in conjunction with the force of equanimity, which means having a balance of mind, having a sense of being able to let go, whereas we might wish wholeheartedly and deeply, with great commitment, that someone be happy, We understand through equanimity that we can't actually control that, that we can't make it so, that we can do what we can as a human being out of a very open heart, and then we have to accept that things are the way that they are. These 
four practices all done together, metta and compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. What is very freeing about this teaching is that there's no particular expression of love or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity that's demanded, that's dictated. We all live out of different lives, different situations, different preferences, different strengths. (coughs) The Buddha once was talking about a particular monk and he was talking about this monk in such a way that he was saying he'd become a monk out of compassion for people. He was living in the forest out of compassion for people. He was practicing contentment with everything that was offered to him and acting with energy and living alone out of compassion for people. Even though he had renounced society, he hadn't renounced his love for beings. He'd chosen a life out of compassion that was meant in his mind to be an inspiration. It was a life of renunciation to be a guiding force for all beings. We might live that way, or we might live a very active, engaged life in the world. The Buddha himself was an example of expressing love and compassion in many different ways, in many different aspects, because his compassion was boundless. It reached from the most personal level to the most absolute level. There's a story about a time when one of the monks in the order came down with a very loathsome disease so that he had oozing sores all over his body. It was a very terrible disease, very unpleasant. Nobody wanted to be in his company because it was so unpleasant. They were avoiding him completely and this monk was lying helpless in his bed, no one taking care of him. So it's said that the Buddha himself became aware of this situation and went himself into this monk's room and took care of him. He bathed his wounds. He took care of him. When he left, he addressed himself to the order, and he said that people need to take care of one another. If you want to serve me, he said, then serve the sick. Look after them. Look after the people who have no one to look after them. He served in this way, And the Buddha also taught a path to liberation. He taught how we could take our lives from this moment and transform them in terms of our actions, in terms of our speech, in terms of our mind. All the way from cleaning someone's sores to teaching a path to liberation. It's through the cultivation of these forces of love and kindness that our lives become a living and spontaneous expression of who we are ranging from the most pragmatic day-to-day encounters to the most internal meditative states we can have. It's a commitment to an awakened life so that all of our actions are based in this motivation to be free and to express that freedom, which is love. To be able to see the difficulty in the world very clearly, to see the pain and suffering, to understand it, to accept it, to relate to it, and to respond to it as skillfully as possible, to offer all that we can to others, to offer generosity and offer friendship, offer trust and loving kindness and wisdom, 
no matter how we're living, no matter what form or style this life may take, it's just essential for our lives to be expressions of our deepest commitment. The Buddha said that one who protects themselves will protect others. One who protects others will protect themselves. We protect ourselves by sustaining meditation, by cultivating it, by practicing it. When we have an inner life that's genuine, that's whole, then we're protecting ourselves and the natural manifestation of that will be to protect others. Without any kind of contrivance or righteous self-image, without forcing, it's the natural outflow of an inner coherence. When we feel anger, within ourselves, if we feel the pain of it, rather than the disgrace of it, rather than judge it, we'll feel compassion for ourselves. And so when we see anger in others, we will understand the pain of that and can feel some compassion for them. That's how we learn patience and that's how we learn love. We learn tenderness by protecting ourselves, by paying attention to all that arises within us holding it in this sense of care and concern rather than judgment. We protect ourselves and so we're protecting others. When we protect others through being careful in our actions, through honoring our deepest values, then in turn we are protecting ourselves. These are the values of openness and awareness and love and compassion. If we make that kind of commitment in our hearts, then it's like we are the repository of a lineage that has stretched back since beginningless time. All good people of all times have expressed these values. I'll close with a story about, again, the Dalai Lama, which I think is just another expression of the sense of a natural outflow of compassion and love without contrivance and without being stylized or rigid. There was a time in the very late 70s when His Holiness the Dalai Lama came here to visit the center. I think it was his first trip to the United States. It was just after a time when I'd been in a very bad car accident who was using crutches for the first time, was having a hard time getting around. When the Dalai Lama came here, it was a scene beyond anything we had ever imagined. What happened was that we had to provide security for him, being an exiled head of state. And so we had state troopers patrolling the roof with guns, and we had Barry Pleasant Street was blockaded off, And there was just this huge uproar. All kinds of things were going on, as you can only imagine how strange it was. And I was just kind of standing in the back of this very large crowd of people. And it was all just crazy. The video cameras going, the state troopers with their guns walking back and forth on the roof. The Dalai Lama got out of the car, and he walked through the crowd, And he saw me just standing there, looking kind of uncomfortable. And he came up to me, and he took my hand, and he said, what happened? (laughs) And it was so beautiful, because it was 
it was not magnificent. It was not some grandiose gesture. It was just this very simple sense of being connected. And I was tremendously moved by it. And sometimes I think we, we fall into this pattern of feeling that, you know, if we're not Mother Teresa and going off to Calcutta, in the streets of Calcutta, that we're not contributing anything. We're not really making a difference. But we do make a difference. We make a difference with little gestures, just by being present, helping someone not feel so alone, not avoiding their suffering, but being present with it, not avoiding our own, being present with it. It all can make a tremendous difference. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.